and welcome to the Science and or Fiction Podcast. I'm Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. All right. This is episode 11 uh, of the Science and or Fiction Podcast, which is my lucky number, uh, which is definitely an unscientific thing to believe in. Hey, if it can be tested, it's science. That's right. the way this works. Uh-huh. And, well, it can be scientifically disproven. Let's 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 be perfectly clear about that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is episode 11. Uh, thankfully, we remembered what uh, number the episode was. Uh, for those of you who listened to episode 10, there was actually a false start that we cut out of the podcast <laughs> where we struggled <laughs> to remember what episode number we were on. Um, but this is definitely episode 11. Uh, and... Uh, this is, I was a musician uh, in high school. I can basically only count yeah. to eight. Right. That's yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty much where I'm at. Uh, and uh, it's it's probably going to get to a point where we're just going to stop saying the episode number because we're going to get it wrong more than we get it right. But that's okay. Well, hopefully, we keep doing this to the point where we get to that point. Um, do we have <laughs> any follow up? I don't think we do. Is there anything no, you've thought of in the last 30 last seconds? Week. Okay. Um, the only follow-up I have, I'll, uh, just give a brief plug for our uh, Patreon. Uh, if you are a listener of the Science and or Fiction podcast, which you would be since you're listening to it right now, um, we want to keep making this podcast. And I mean, our plan is to keep making this podcast. We're just asking those of you who listen to the podcast to just help us out a little bit with some of the the behind the scenes expenses uh, hosting and things like that for making this podcast um and we created a patreon uh patreon is a uh way for you to on a regular basis support us financially so it's different than like kickstarter or gofundme where you give a bunch of money uh you know once with patreon with our patreon in particular for just as little as one dollar a month you would be doing a huge amount to help us out with continuing to make the podcast. Um, so thank you to anyone who considers that we would tremendously appreciate it. And for that dollar and for every different amount above that, um, you will get rewards, uh, from us. I am going to probably revamp those awards and try to add some cooler stuff too than just, you know, shout outs and t-shirts and stickers and stuff. But, uh, Definitely, we'll keep those too. So, if you want a shout out on the podcast, just give us a dollar. That's that's where we're at right now. We'd really appreciate it to help us keep making this. So, thank you. And then also, mm-hmm. uh, if you haven't yet, follow us on all our social media. We are at Cyandorfi on Twitter. Uh, we are Facebook.com forward slash Cyandorfi. Instagram, we have an Instagram now. We are at Cyandorfi. And uh, you can go to our website, scienceandorfiction.com. Send us an email, scienceandorfiction at gmail.com. Lucas, what do we have this week? So I thought we'd start off this week by talking about antibiotics. So right. uh, antibiotics, I mean, it, it's kind of a thing that I think a lot of people are talking about recently. Um, I don't know, Taylor, when you were growing up, I'm sure you when you went to the doctor, um, if, you're, if your pediatrician was anything like mine... I would come in, you know, you'd come in or I would come in with a case of the sniffles and he'd be like, oh, here, take some antibiotics. You'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, just take a and, Z-pack. Yeah, sure. Why not? What could be the harm? Well, now we're finding out that there's some harm. Mm. Um, so antibiotic resistance is a growing problem and it might be something that we really have to worry about in our lifetimes. Right. This is an issue that that continues to grow and despite efforts of 
the medical community to decrease the prescription of antibiotics, uh, especially in unnecessary cases like, you know, viral infections where they are completely useless. Um, it is going to be a bigger issue in our lifetime, particularly, and in the way that the uh, invention and proliferation of antibiotics in our great grandparents and grandparents' lifetimes revolutionized medicine in a positive way. Antibiotic resistance seems like it could revolutionize medicine in a not so positive way in our lifetime. Right. So you have to think about, you know, back in the, well, you say good old days, but maybe not so good old days when if you had uh, some sort of infection or whatever, you would go to your local barber, they would cut open your arm and bleed you dry. And then they would say, all right, you should be fine and send you home uh, to yes. die. Yeah. And this was revolutionized when penicillin was developed kind of on accident. Yeah. Uh, that's a fun story. But the idea that we could take these, you know, small, small doses relatively of medicinal compounds that specifically kill bacteria, uh, that was revolutionary. That right. made battlefield medicine uh, possible. It made yeah. surgery survivable. Mm-hmm. It made uh, the infant mortality rate and mother mortality rate drop significantly. And we entered this phase where we, you know, we have this crazy asymptotic human population growth because there's just so fewer, you know, so many fewer ways to die now because right, we can treat right, right. illness. Yeah. And that is, that and, is an, an issue that, that is in itself something that we have to deal with. It seems, I mean, it's kind of horrible to say that like the massive population growth, like much more people, you know, more people surviving horrible things causes problems, but it does because, you know, food and water and shelter are all things that people require. And when we have more people, you know, we have to find food and water and shelter for those people, obviously. But maybe a better thing to do than um, letting more people die would be to try and figure out how to provide food and water and shelter and, you know, life (laughs) requirements for those people and also keep them from dying of things that were treated well by antibiotics 50 to 100 years ago. Right. Uh, But anyway, with antibiotics specifically, it seems like we might be exiting the golden age of antibiotics that we didn't know we were in. Right. Um, So the the idea is that bacteria have, uh, you know, when when you're attacking a bacteria with antibiotics, these things are just there's molecules. These are small molecules. They they travel into bacteria or they attach to the outside of bacteria. And for whatever reason, by different mechanisms, those molecules will stop a bacteria from being able to grow or make it more susceptible to immune attack or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so these bacteria, because the process of evolution does what it does, if you don't kill 100% of the bacteria with a dose of antibiotics, the ones that are left over are more likely to have random point mutations that make them less susceptible to those antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Then those bacteria are surviving, they proliferate, and pretty soon you have a large infection that is dominated by bacteria that have no susceptibility to whatever antibiotic you are on. And if you do this small you know, evolution experiment inside a human body millions upon millions of times, pretty soon you develop strains of bacteria that just cannot be treated with, bac- with, the, uh, with the antibiotics that right. we currently have. Right, so things like vancomycin-resistant enterococcus or methicillin-resistant staphylococcus. Um, 
those are those are things that we've kind of known about for a while, especially those of us in the healthcare community. Uh, and methicillin and vancomycin are two of our most powerful antibiotics. And these are these are drugs that are you know uh, so powerful that they cause significant side effects, even in cases where they're given to people who are very healthy beforehand and um you know it, they're they're powerful drugs they cause people to get really sick while they're working uh mm-hmm. so and a lot of times they're medications that cause such awful side effects that even though they're killing the bacterial infection they make you so sick that you have to stay in the hospital while you're getting them um and especially affect like in the case of VRE like older populations and and MRSA obviously affects people of all ages and is prevalent pretty much everywhere. Um, just working in healthcare, you probably have enough MRSA on you to start, uh, you know, a a small colony if you had a serious injury and didn't clean it appropriately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I kind of, I mean, Taylor, you have a particular perspective from being in, you know, emergency medicine. You probably see situations where people have these infections that are just, you know, they go in and say, well, you know, I've been trying to treat this and it just, it's not going away. Right. And what do you do? You you have to go on a pretty hardcore dose of antibiotics of the really right. hardcore stuff. But if antibiotic resistance continues in the way that we expect it to, those hardcore drugs that are so powerful that you have to stay in the hospital while you're on them, they might not work anymore. And we would be up a creek without a paddle. Right. And, and that's, that's, we're back to where we started before antibiotics, where you just, your immune system takes care of it or you die. Uh, you know, and that's in a lot of cases with some of these bacterial infections that are treated so easily now, um, that, even in healthy people whose immune systems were able to fight them off before uh, antibiotics caused debilitating injuries and and serious um, you know issues that they dealt with for the rest of their life after having that disease, like um, you know strep throat, for example, like a streptococcus infection in, in of the the adenoids and tonsils, which I've had pretty much every year since I was a kid and taken, you know, a Z pack and gotten better. Uh, George Washington died of strep throat. Uh, so it's, it's kind of crazy to think that some of these things that are so simple can cause such serious effects if they're not treated with antibiotics. So, you know, if we got to the point where some of these much more common issues, uh, were, you know, where these, uh, bacteriums were becoming resistant to most common antibiotics. So imagine strep throat where you have to be in the hospital for a week on a vancomycin IV drip, uh, you know, puking your guts out and obviously, you know, kind of horrendously one of the most serious side effects of antibiotics is diarrhea, uh, because antibiotics kill, uh, pretty indiscriminately a lot of the time. Uh, and there are a lot of very helpful bacteria, especially, uh, in our, in our digestive system, our, our gut flora. And when those get killed by antibiotics, it, the, the effects that they had in helping our body break down food material appropriately, uh, so that our body can do things like, uh, absorb the water from, uh, our feces before it's excreted, 
those kind of go out the window. And so you have diarrhea and diarrhea uh, is a particularly potentially deadly symptom. Um, More people die from the complications of disease causing diarrhea than any other disease complication or I'm sorry, more healthy people worldwide or previously healthy people before they get sick die from the complication of diarrhea from a host of diseases than any other disease complication. Yeah. I, uh, when, let's see, when I was a teenager, maybe this is a little bit too much information, but when I was a teenager, I had my wisdom teeth taken out as many people do. And I was on a combination of uh, some painkillers and a pretty powerful dose of antibiotics because they wanted, you know, as preventative to make sure I didn't Mm -hmm. get sick. And I can attest to the problems that uh, cleaning out your gut flora can cause. Yeah. Uh, They are are unpleasant. And thankfully, I had a support system and I was fine. But I can imagine that even a powerful dose of antibiotics, when it does work, can also give you very, very... uh, severe problems um in other areas yeah yeah no it it can cause real problems and i mean there are there are other a lot of other places where uh good bacteria protect and help our body do what it's supposed to do and i think uh, we haven't always looked at those and thought about those and and done the research into those before we think oh well just you know strong course of antibiotics you know just take these 30 amoxicillin and you'll be fine. Well, you might have diarrhea and die, uh, <laughs> which is horrible, but it, it does happen. Um, and uh, that's that's one issue. Another issue I think that we could start to run into is uh, sepsis. And sepsis particularly affects people who already have uh, serious health issues like diabetes and uh, poor mobility and things like that. Um the majority of cases of sepsis that I see are from nursing homes, unsurprisingly. Uh, and mm-hmm. they involve people who have open sores on their body that are unable to heal due to immobility, diabetes, um, any number of other immune conditions. Uh, but that's something that emergency medicine is starting to take very, very seriously. So a lot of hospital systems and um, academic health systems have been starting, um, surviving sepsis campaigns because they found that people were just dying of sepsis. And so even in Indiana, um, there's a big push for recognizing the signs and symptoms of sepsis outside of the hospital in the same way that they did with like stroke symptoms, you know, fast face or face face. No, it's fast. I think I, you would think I would know this face, arm, (laughs) speech, time, you know, facial droop, arm drift, speech being slurred and how when it started you know they're Mm -hmm. they've devised similar mnemonics and different ways of of recognizing sepsis so when you go visit your elderly family member at the nursing home you can start to recognize well are they hot and dry are they cool to the touch you know do they have have they been urinating regularly have they been eating you know are they starting to become less lucid things like that and because nursing homes aren't always great at recognizing uh, acute medical emergencies in their uh, patient population. Uh, So, you know, having, and even like family members taking care of people at home. But anyway, uh, sepsis is something where I think that as we start to see 
uh, more and more uh, bacteria resistance or bacteria resistance to antibiotics, uh, we'll start to see more sepsis. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get to a point where we start to see sepsis more often in people with less pre-existing health issues or even people with no pre-existing health issues because they might be prescribed bacteria or I'm sorry, they might be prescribed an antibiotic that would have worked for that problem that they have and sent home and, you know, they take the course of back the antibiotics and they, they're still sick and they start to get sicker and sicker and, and it gets to the point where they have sepsis and sepsis, by the way, is just, it's a systemic infection. Think of it as, uh, your bacterial infection metastasizing in the way the cancer does. So it starts in one place and spreads through your blood, through your lymph, uh, to different parts of your body and to the point where it becomes a systemic infection in your blood. And that's, that's bad. That's really bad news bears, uh, when you yeah. get to that point. So, and, and requires very, very, very aggressive emergency treatment. So, mm-hmm. so then after all of this, so we, we, it seems like we're going into the era of, you know, post antibiotics, uh, the question then comes, well, what can we do about it? How, how can we prevent this? We're not, we're not sliding down this hill towards certain doom. You know, is there something we can do about this? And Mm -hmm. and there is, uh, it's, it's there, there is a little glimmer of hope. Uh, (laughs) and I think there, there are a couple ways of attacking this. Um, I think primarily the, uh, the, the way that makes the most sense to me is, is on the healthcare system and, in not prescribing unnecessary antibiotics. That seems really simple, like just a simple idea. Um, but if you could go back and tell my childhood pediatrician, well, hey, maybe don't give him moxicillin all the time, right. that might prevent a development of a, a moxicillin-resistant bacterial infection, mm-hmm. um, which at this point, many are. So yeah, yeah. those those antibiotics that I took as a kid just don't work as well anymore, even mm-hmm. in the, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, there are other ways of attacking things. And as, as a chemist, this is the one that jumps out at me, but there are other, uh, when we're developing new antibiotics, um, sometimes there are, are ways of taking an existing antibiotic, say penicillin and taking the molecular structure of that molecular of that drug and altering it slightly so that you can change one group to another. You take a, a ring and change it to a chain of carbons or, a, um, you know, you take a chlorine and switch it to a fluorine, something like that. And sometimes you can get around antibiotic resistance just by a couple of simple changes right. like that. Maybe and that works to a degree as, as simple as like, you know, flipping the chirality of, of that, whatever uh, yeah. molecule is being used uh, yeah, in the exactly. same way that we've been doing with medications for, you know, as long as stereochemistry has existed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Imagine. Um, and, and that's great. That that's a way of doing it. And that's actually a, a pretty low, low bar uh, as far as scientifically, at least it's pretty easy to crank out new drugs like that. Um, but often if you're, let's say you have a, a, a bacteria that's resistant penicillin most of the time, it's resistant to penicillin for a couple of reasons, uh, one of which sometimes is that it develops these uh, these pumps where if penicillin gets into the bacteria, the bacteria has developed these proteins that pump out the penicillin, and so it mm. can't do its job on the inside of the cell. 
So switching around a few atoms here or there often can get you a little bit of uh, push past the resistance, but very often if a, if a bacteria has a protein that has a little pocket in it that's shaped exactly like penicillin, and you change the structure of penicillin a little bit so that it doesn't quite fit in that pocket anymore, it doesn't take very long for the bacteria to adapt and switch over to a slightly different size pocket, and now it can pump out your drug too. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't work very well. Um, some of the research that we're actually doing in my research lab uh, involve going after new targets entirely. So, you know, penicillin is a cell wall attacking uh, drug, so it, it inhibits the ability of a cell to produce its protective cell wall. And there are a lot of other types of targets inside bacterial cells that drugs go after. A lot of times they go after, you know, uh, RNA polymerase, or they go after protein expression, or, or whatever, um, or glycoprotein expression. The the hard part is coming up with a new way, a, a completely new way to attack a, a bacteria that it is totally un uh, un uh, not expecting. So if if nobody's attacked a particular target before and you come out with a drug that attacks that target, there is very little chance that that bacteria is going to be able to develop resistance quickly. Mm -hmm. And that drug might be able to be um, maybe not indefinitely used, but used for a longer period of time than, say, just a new slightly altered version of penicillin. Hmm. Um, right. That's really hard, <laughs> yeah. which is why it doesn't happen very often. But that's why academic labs are taking it on, because uh, a, a big company you know, say a pharmaceutical company who's trying to develop a new uh, antibiotic-resistant um, drug, if they're going after a completely new target, it's it's scientifically, it's uncharted territory, it might not work and they might lose a lot of money. And so a lot of pharmaceutical companies aren't really going after those right now because they just, they have the potential to be so unprofitable. It's kind of crass, but mm. that's what it is. Right. And so academic labs now are kind of taking up them up that development process because uh, we don't have any money anyway. So right. there's not a whole lot to lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes perfect sense. So it sounds like the, the, there's kind of a two pronged approach to this that, that could keep antibiotics going for the foreseeable future, which is one prevent the things that are causing um, the resistance in the first place. So cut down on the prescription of antibiotics especially in unnecessary cases, which still happens. Um, mm -hmm. And two, or, or I guess one B, um, there are a lot of ways that we can treat things before they get to a point of causing bacterial infections, I think, too. Um, so maybe having less people in the hospital, keeping hospitals cleaner, uh, I think a lot of times people are being hospitalized or admitted to hospitals, it seems like, and getting sicker, maybe trying to keep people out of the hospital as much as possible when appropriate to do so. But then the second thing is to it's going to be an ongoing process uh, indefinitely, it sounds like, to stay on top uh, pharmaceutically of treating bacterial infections with antibiotics. So developing new antibiotics is going to be a continual ongoing process, but there are new approaches to it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. 
All right, well, Taylor, why don't you tell yeah. us about our next topic? Absolutely. Um, this is uh, this is a feel-good story. Uh, Catherine Johnson uh, is a, uh, a mathematician and um, in just one of those people who is uh, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly intelligent human beings and capable of doing things that boggle my mind as a probably relatively intelligent human being myself. I mean, I'm not a genius at all, but I'm okay at math. <laughs> and the <laughs> stuff that Katherine Johnson did is beyond my comprehension. She is mm -hmm. a, uh, or was a NASA um, mathematician. She worked uh, probably most famously uh, for uh, the uh, Friendship 7 mission, John Glenn uh, orbiting in his capsule. And she was known as the human computer, and uh, John Glenn famously asked NASA to get the girl, Johnson, um, to run those numbers that their computers had run in programming uh, the flight path for uh, Friendship 7. And that's that was his – he trusted her and her computational ability – to uh, figure out this flight plan more than he trusted the computers. And there's, there's something to be said for that because she was pretty much always right uh, <laughs> and able to do these, these mathematical, uh, solve these mathematical problems that I wouldn't even know where to even think about beginning uh, to look at how she planned these things and plotted these things out. And so uh, NASA, to honor her, uh, is uh or she's 99 years old now but they honored her uh, and she was present for the ribbon cutting of the Catherine g johnson computational research facility uh at nasa langley which is named after her and and you know in honor of the incredible incredible work that she did um to help america get to space and it's great because that's a lasting legacy for her and uh her work is probably, I'm sure, still used uh, in plotting how we launch rockets and things like that and how we orbit the Earth. And uh, not only is it something that is good because it uh, memorializes her and her work, but it also um, it, it is a, a kind of a, a beacon for women in science uh, and something that you know, girls and women who want to be scientists can look at and say, this, this woman showed that we can do this, uh, you know, in a world full of chauvinists who said, no, you can't. Uh, and, and you brought up something about this when we were talking about this before that there are fields in science that before chauvinists started attacking women for doing them were kind of considered to be that stereotypical women's work. And that maybe this was one of those things. Yeah. So, um, part of the reason why uh, Katherine Johnson has been in my recent memory is the the recent movie uh, Hidden Figures, which was uh, an amazing movie. If you haven't seen the movie, it, it's not an it's not a perfect historical recreation. They take a little bit of artistic license, but it's more or less what happened, and it's a it's a fantastic movie. Um, it's got a little bit of everything for, uh, a little bit for everybody. But anyway, um, yeah, Katherine Johnson that the movie and her real story. Um, goes through the the idea that before computers uh, were reliable, um, 
And by reliable, I mean you could put in punch cards and get out ticker tape that told you what the answer was. Um, most uh, computationally intensive tasks were done by teams of human computers. And these are often women, um, often women of color. And they, you know, were just a, had a room in the basement with a bunch of adding machines, uh, you know, mechanical adders, and sat there and did vector calculus for a living. Hmm. And Katherine Johnson was a very capable and uh, impressive computer, as they as they called them. And uh, sort of was there during the transition from using human computers to using silicon computers um, when you know transistors became things that we could use. And uh, she really led the way in computational uh, computational work in the Mercury missions, um, but also uh, even into the shuttle era, she was still uh, she was still running numbers. Hmm. But what you said Incredible. about these the the fields that were traditionally, uh, I don't want to say dominated by women um, because they were mostly forced upon women because some of that was considered women's work. So early, early uh, computer scientists were often women because it was seen to be a repetitive, tedious task that, um, mm-hmm. you know, small brained women could handle or whatever. Um, and only, I mean, now when I think of a, a you know, a hardcore computer scientist, sometimes uh, you think of the you know the neckbeard in his basement hacking servers or whatever, and mm-hmm. that uh, that image of kind of the the guy being the the computer scientist person is is relatively recent. Um, for a very long time, most of the computer scientists in the world were women because they came out of that that tradition of uh, it being you know quote women's work, even though it was some of the most important work that was being done. Right. And it seems like that history has kind of been either glossed over or like sort of revisionist history, because if you really look into the history of computers uh, and you look at um, around the time of World War II, like when computers were first like, you know, massive warehouse sized computers uh, were being built, uh, a lot of the people that were working on those it seems like were women and a lot of their stories aren't told because you know revisionist history is often told from a chauvinist perspective unfortunately <laughs> uh but um there there's some really incredible women and i i think we should talk more about about them but katherine johnson certainly one of them um and man just it's really incredible uh, what she has done and her legacy, I think, has been inspiring and, and you know, I don't know that I think that probably like a lot of people who have created change that wasn't necessarily something that they set out to do, but just did by their actions mm-hmm. um, and and their actions inspired people. And I think uh, when we were watching the end of the Cassini uh, mission uh, and you know, you look at the control room at JPL, and you see a lot of women there, and it's and it's and they talk to uh, people, and and it is uh, very much something where where there are a lot of women running this show, and and good because mm-hmm. they're, you know, I mean, <laughs> I feel like this should be uh, common sense to anyone who would listen to this kind of a podcast, but that's that's exactly where women belong is doing the exact same work that men are doing. Because mm-hmm. they're just as capable of doing that as we are, and 
in the case of Katherine Johnson, a lot more capable of doing com- computer level math than I am because I got a C <laughs> in calculus. So <laughs> good. So it's a great, it's a great legacy. And I, you know, it, it, one of the things in the, the NASA article that talks about is, you know, all the people that she inspired being there with her, her family and uh, people from the 21st century community learning centers program, which is an awesome program. And uh, people from black girls code, which is another really, really, really great uh, organization that helps, um, you know, women of color and girls of color know and, and live into the place that they have in uh, being, the 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 future makers and our future is largely computerized and and digital and uh people like katherine johnson deserve to be remembered as inspiring women to realize and be accepted as equal members of the scientific community and the technological community so yeah awesome. I, I think katherine johnson uh just reading her story and stuff She's she's inspiring. I mean, not just to young women of color, but I mean, she's inspiring to me. Sure, <laughs> like I absolutely. Don't, I don't. I don't really fit her demographic, and yet she's she's a really awesome figure. I mean, looking at the stuff that she did in the 1950s and 1960s, I and the the kind of um, the computational work that she did and the early computer science stuff that she did, it you know, uh, it inspired me. I mean, I'm playing around with you know writing a a. a, a like an iPhone app now because I'm like, well, if, if people in the fifties can write programs in right. assembly language, I can probably do it too. And yeah. uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty fun. It's very cool. Um, and, and yeah, and that, that's, that's definitely, I mean, it's inspiring to us too as guys and as just people who are interested in science for two reasons. One, it's inspiring that anybody can do that level of work. And two, I think it, it, I think that I'm a better person or I have some better understanding of the world by having people to look up to like her, uh, you know, in, in understanding how people, women and men are capable of doing the same work. And, and that's something that like, you know, maybe a lot of people, if you grew up in your family was very much male dominated and you uh, didn't get to see a lot of the incredible, wonderful women and girls in the world that have done incredible and wonderful things. Uh, You know, that might color the way that you see the world and the way that you see women and girls. And and I'm thankful that growing up, I've had, you know, examples like her to look up to and, and, and respect. Um, So just as yeah. a human being, as a woman, as a scientist, as a human computer, an incredible, incredible woman and, and well-deserving of the honor of having this uh, facility named after her. So, um, good for her. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, let's let's wrap this up with one last topic. Taylor, right. why don't you tell us about uh, <laughs> some cool sci-fi stories? Right. So one thing that uh, I we've kicked around the idea of doing has been a, um, not necessarily a book club, but uh, kind of like an internet short story club, uh, taking a look at some short stories and long stories even that are on the internet and therefore freely accessible to anyone who wants to read them. Um, so if you're a listener and you're interested in joining in on this, um, 
we'd be very happy to have you do that. And I've talked to a couple other people uh, online that are interested in kind of adding their commentary to this too. Um, but uh, the first story that uh, I, I kind of stumbled upon, I had read, uh, you know, this came out in, I think, 2012. Um, and uh, I, I was very interested in uh, bringing it back up once I saw it uh, by an author named Cameron Suey. Uh, and he wrote the, the Joseph K stories, which are kind of Reddit famous, short science fiction. Um, and I thought this was a very good one, uh, because it's, it's kind of a little bit, uh, Stephen Kingish in that it is, uh, a story of disaster that the characters don't necessarily understand the origin of or the science of, uh, but it is terrifying, uh, and uh, it's called East and, uh, I won't spoil anything about it now because I figure we're going to talk about it later, but it is the story of a, uh, how people in particular, this character are, um, trying to survive by fleeing from a entropy storm. So it is a storm that is pure entropy. It, it decreases and, um, I guess not destroys because you can't destroy energy, but it, it decreases energy's effect and it decreases the possibility of potential energy, it seems like, and causes some horrifying effects as it does that, as you might imagine. Uh, I will link to it on the uh, show notes of this, but it's East by Cameron Suey. It's a part of the Joseph K stories. There are a few other great stories that he's uh, written that we can talk about. And then there are some other great stories that we've talked about too, but uh we will uh, we'll read yeah, through so this. We, we'll post some things on the website. Yeah, get that, listeners. You have homework this week. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and it should be fun, homework. So you're not going to have to write an essay about it or anything, I promise, or a book report. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, hit us up uh, on Twitter or Facebook with your thoughts uh, about East as you read them. And uh, we'll discuss it uh, in a future episode. Maybe not the next episode. We'll give people a little bit of time to read it and, and get some uh, listener thoughts about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I think this is, this is an interesting, fun, relatively short, easy to read story and, uh, should provide some great discussion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think that that's just about wraps it up. Um, absolutely. Next week, look out for the Nobel prizes coming out. Yes. Um, This is partially a science podcast. So we have to talk about Nobel prizes. Um, as we're recording here on the 1st of October, um, I think tomorrow, the first one, I don't remember the order in which they release them, but over the next several days, there will be, um, out of Stockholm, the, the Nobel Prize will be coming out. So we'll be uh, talking about that a little bit next week. So do you, uh, do you have anybody that you're, uh, you're rooting for that's uh, potentially in the running for a Nobel Prize? Well, and the ones that I care about are obviously the chemistry prize. Um, right. And there, there have been some ideas floated around um, the... Uh, we the the contenders this year we think are probably for CRISPR the the gene editing technique. Mm. Although I think that's probably a little early to do that. We haven't really seen the effects of that quite yet. Um, one is for uh, bio orthogonal chemistry, so st- uh, chemistry that you can do on the inside of a cell that doesn't interact with the rest of the chemistry going on in the cell. That's mm. my pick. Um, I think that's really cool, and not only that, I know a few people who should be on the list for that. So, <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's uh, cool. Um, that'll be interesting to see. Hopefully, maybe one of those will uh, 
one of those will pull out a win. Uh, yeah. It's not really a win. I mean, I guess you, you are awarded a Nobel Prize. But, uh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to, <laughs> we'll have a little bit of discussion about that. And, Lucas, you can offer your probably a little bit more um, concise opinion on the, the Nobel Prizes in the different scientific fields that uh, are interesting. And uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, what those came from, but I guess for this episode, uh, of the science and or fiction podcast, uh, I'd like to thank you for listening. Like I said, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash fi for as little as a dollar a month. You can help us keep making this and we, we'd appreciate it and have, uh, so much gratitude for you doing that. So do that. Check us out on all our social media stuff. Uh, for this episode, I'm Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. We'll talk to you next time.